So as we enter into today's message and the messages over the next few weeks, the question that is really resonating in my mind as I'm praying and preparing is in the same way that Dayton, Kettering and the outlying districts of the Dayton community have been known for innovation in engineering and technology down through the generations, down through the decades, to the extent that it's really no hyperbole to suggest that Dayton has changed the world. Is it possible that God is raising up a people in Dayton, in Kettering, whose innovations, not in engineering and technology, but in discipling and ecclesiology, is it possible that there is a people that God is raising up that could change the world? And my answer to that is, I genuinely, without any sense of needing to hype this at all, I genuinely believe that that's the case. I believe that God has put together here in the city and specifically here in this church of churches, this church of house churches, a model of life and of Christian discipleship that could genuinely impact not only the churches of America, but the churches of the world in a particularly dynamic fashion. But there are both opportunities and specifically, as we look today, challenges that we encounter as we begin to imagine that possible future. And so with that in mind, I want us to turn to the scriptures and look today at Luke chapter 22. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples at the end of the Last Supper. Remember he has washed their feet. He has spoken to them about his departure, his death on the cross. He's spoken to them about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's instituted the Lord's Supper among them, giving them giving them the bread and the wine to remember him by. And so it's perhaps natural that at the end of such a glorious evening, the disciples have one thing on their mind, and that is, who's the most important disciple there? It's incredible, isn't it? Luke records for us what's going on in the after-dinner discussion. Verse 24, Luke chapter 22 and verse 24 says, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at table? But I am among you 
as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this is a subject that Jesus has turned to from time to time during his discipling of his disciples. From time to time, the subject emerges as to which one of them is the most important. Mark 10 gives us another little insight as to how Jesus deals with this consistent conversation in the hearts and minds of the disciples. But here in Luke chapter 22, we have Jesus delving deeper into the subject and giving us an understanding that will perhaps carry into our 21st situation, 21st century situation. Jesus says, in the world that his disciples knew and understood, there were leaders who were the most prominent men in their culture. And these leaders were known for having access to two particular tools of leadership. The first tool of leadership was power. They lord it over them and exercise authority. The first indication of leadership influence in the time of Jesus is that the people who are leading, invariably men, the people who are leading have power over the people who are following. They have power. They have power over their lives. They have power over the circumstances of their lives. They have power over the future and destiny of those that follow. Leaders in the time of Jesus had power. And alongside power, there was the other lever of leadership, provision. Those who exercise authority over you call themselves benefactors. Now everyone knew, gathered around that table with Jesus that night, that what Jesus was sharing was empirically accurate. There was no doubt, there's no dispute, there's no one pushing back. No one from the time of Jesus would have suggested an alternative view of society. Society was stratified. The 50% of the population who were slaves, indentured servants, had no rights, no property, no access to power or provision. Above them, the Roman citizenry, who theoretically had a vote on who went to the Senate. And then there is the Senate, gathered from the noble families of Rome, gathered from the great and the good, and from among those families, of course, we see the emergence of Caesar and his family. And when we see this world, this stratified society, and when we look into the lives and the homes of the people who lived in the scattered communities of the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, you would find artifacts and indications in every home that everyone believed if they were a Roman citizen that their prosperity depended upon Pax Romana, upon the Roman peace, 
a peace that was assured and insured by the might of Rome. But what we miss, miss very often and what we often misunderstand is that Pax Romana is something that is now fairly universally understood in our common tongue and in our, in our contemporary world was really understood at the time of Jesus to be Caesar's peace. It was the peace of Caesar. It was Caesar who with all of his power provided the means by which everyone within the empire prospered. And so from the highest of leaders down to the very lowest, it was undoubted that what Jesus was describing about leadership of his day was absolutely accurate. Leaders had power and with their power, they provided. They provided for those over whom they had power. There was a kind of social contract that if you have power, then your responsibility is to provide. There's no pushback. There's no question. This observation of society is both compelling and accurate. And Jesus says, but you are not to be like that. And then he takes himself as the model. He takes himself as the imitatable pattern. And he says, look at me. I have power beyond your knowing. And you would think that with all of my power, power that you've seen demonstrated in the dead being raised and the sick being healed, power that could command legions of angels, you would think that I would be one who would sit at the table and yet I'm one among you who serves. Jesus says, you are not to be like that, but the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves, the servant and the child had no property, had no power, had no capacity to do the things that would ordinarily be understood to be the things of leadership. And Jesus said, and that's how you have to operate. Now this is, a, this is a complex subject, so we're gonna come back to this in a moment. But let's just ask ourselves, what then became of such a calling and such a movement? Well, of course we know, but perhaps you don't know all of the details. Let me share with you some of them. On the day of Pentecost, there are 120 people gathered in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes upon the 120 disciples. The, 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 the vestige of all of the crowds that had followed Jesus. 120 remain after the crucifixion and the resurrection and now comes the Holy Spirit. And that 120 people are propelled onto the streets of Jerusalem to share the good news. And almost immediately, almost immediately from day one, for the next 250, 270 years, the church is persecuted. Persecuted in a way that those Indian Christians are persecuted. Persecuted in a way that other persecuted Christians around the world down through the centuries have been persecuted and still worse. 
People are thrown to wild beasts, dipped in tar and lit to illuminate the streets of Rome. The terrible things that are done to Christians do not halt the work. The best estimates taken from the censuses from the day that are now available to us and the greatest sociologists who looking at this, at this data tell us that from the day of Pentecost to the time of Constantine, the church goes from 120 people to 50% of the population of the Roman Empire. They have no buildings. They have no budget. They have no power. They have no capacity to provide. The leaders of the church are like the leaders that Jesus describes. And yet, in 250 years, this underground movement goes from 120 to 50% of the Roman Empire. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because those people are doing it in the power that Jesus sends and in the way that Jesus taught them. But then comes Constantine. I don't want to suggest he's a bogey figure. He did the best that he could. Constantine is on his way to claim the throne of Rome. His great antagonist, Maxentius, is holding sway right now. He asks his mother, a Christian, he says, what should I do? She says, you need to dedicate yourself to Christ. And so as he sees the planet Venus, the morning and the evening star set in the heavens in its cruciform shape, a cross in the sky. He kneels and commits his life to Christ and he wins the seminal battle of the Milvian Bridge and he takes command of the Roman Empire. And immediately, in 313, he declares the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan is this, that the Christian church that has been persecuted and driven to the very margins of society over the last 250 years has won the foot race in all of the religions of the Roman Empire and is now the religion of favored status. And at that moment, for the best of intentions, he and his mother and the Christian household that began to develop around them transferred the greatest capital sum and investment into a single organization that the world has ever seen. The great basilicas of pagan Rome are given to the church as cathedrals. And the church is taken and poured into the social fabric of the Roman Empire. All of those millions of people who've come to Christ now are accepted within the social framework of the Roman Empire and the elders become Roman aristocrats. And they wear the accoutrements of power. They wear the purple robes of the, of the Italian aristocracy. They wear the, the amazing uh, vestments of those who are seen to be the people of the highest nobility. And suddenly, in a moment, the church goes from the shadows to the spotlight. 
Rodney Stark, perhaps the greatest sociologist of religion of our generation, says that within two generations, imagine, within two generations, the church becomes the place that you need to join as a clergyman if you want to prosper in the Roman Empire. So within two generations, the church goes from nowhere to being the very leader of society. Now you say to me, this is all very interesting, Mike, but we didn't really come to church today for a history lesson. Well, strap yourself in, there's a bit more history yet to come. (laughs) Because this history is enormously important if we are to understand what it is that we have in front of us as a challenge. The challenge that we overcome is not a simple, a simple challenge. It's a deeply complex challenge that goes back right to Constantine. Within a hundred years of the Edict of Milan, Rome has fallen. The Visigoths have come from Northern Europe. They're heretics, they are, they are Arians. They believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that he's God. They sack Rome. Rome crumbles. The Visigoths continue in their headlong pursuit of crushing the Roman Empire. They go all the way around the Mediterranean basin. They go to North Africa to, to the great flesh pots of the, of the Roman Empire along that northern coast of Africa. They come to Hippo, the great city of, of the great Augustine, the greatest mind of his day, the greatest theologian for centuries. He pens his last words of his confessions and then dies. And within days, the Visigoths have taken the city and opened the gates. But those words penned by Augustine provide us with the theology that will continue as the groundwork of the church for a thousand years. And what happens, of course, as the Roman Empire declines into rubble is that the church that has been poured into the social fabric of the Roman Empire preserves that social fabric and becomes the leader of the known world. And so Europe re-emerges with a new leader, not an imperial leader, but a leader that is described by the understanding that now we have the Holy Roman Empire. And Europe is fashioned and formed by the church and the church oversees the establishing of this this social order that is now propelled and propagated across all of the peoples of Europe and it forms a thing called feudalism. Feudalism means that the people at the very top own all of the property. Everything that you can see everywhere is owned by just a few people. And everyone else is a peasant living on that property. Their task is to use the land that has been given to them. They function as tenants and they, they plant that land, they feed their family and they pay their taxes from the tithe from that land. And this system of social contract is, is so stable and so profoundly powerful that it continues for a thousand years. The people at the top, the feudal lords, have a social contract with those over whom they have power and that is that they will provide for them in times of need. They'll provide for them by giving them land, 
so that they can plant their crops. And then in times of famine, they can come to the feudal lords and they'll have kept back some of the tithes that they'll have offered and they'll feed them during those hard times. Well, you can imagine what happens. Feudalism grows up with the twin metrics of how many peasants do you have and how much tax do they pay? Feudalism grows up and is so stable, so strong, that hardly anything threatens it. Just two or three things. The emergence of city-states in Italy, urbanization. You see, there are so many people in the cities, they don't know how to count the peasants. And they don't know how to tax them because the guys who are selling hot dogs on the corner run away before you can get the money off them. And before you know it, those petty merchants have become incredibly wealthy. They're lending money to the aristocracy. And in those new republic cities where there is no king, a new idea emerges of democracy for all. Of course, war is one of the things that threatens feudalism most profoundly. You see, war in a feudal society is war between the feudal lords. That feudal lord over there, he moves his property line over here. This feudal lord over here sees him do it and says, you're not allowed to do that. The greatest of all the feudal wars, the First World War, was one which is so easily portrayed and understood. Maybe you saw the movie War Horse where the English officer describes and, and helps the, 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 uh, the enlisted men to understand what it is that's gonna happen. He says, now then, chaps, cousin Willie over there has got a little bit uppity and we're gonna go over there and teach him a jolly good lesson. And when we go over there, I want you to know that God is on our side and we're going to be fighting for God and for country and for king. Hurrah! Hip hip! Hooray! <laughs> and the enlisted men, drawn from the peasantry, look at each other as if to say, is he serious? He wants us just to go and throw ourselves on those machine guns? And so it is in the First World War in the fields of Flanders, hundreds of thousands of young lives are slaughtered. A war of attrition that wins maybe a hundred yards in four years. All for the territorial control of different feudal lords started when one feudal lord is killed by one revolutionary called Princip Gravilo. See, everyone's heard of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who goes to Sarajevo, and in Sarajevo is shot by some unknown assailant, but of course, it's Princip Gravilo of the Serbian separatist group, the Black Hand. And he shoots Archduke Ferdinand and sets in train a series of events that will bring down feudalism in Europe. Within just a few years, the aristocrats from Russia to Britain have lost control over their land. 
Either they've lost their lives as they did in Russia or they just lose their status as they did in Britain. And so much of their land is handed over to the state. And now, instead of the aristocrats and the royalty controlling the lives of others, that control is given to the state. And so feudalism is seen to crumble as we remove all of the aristocrats and make everyone a peasant. What a great idea. The third approach that brings down feudalism, and this is tremendously important because this is where it bears on our history and what's happening here today in Dayton in 2019. The third assault on feudalism is famine. Famine emerges in Europe from time to time. And when there is a famine, the peasants come to the feudal lords to enact their social contract and the feudal lords usually have not saved anything back. They've built palaces. Marie Antoinette, who didn't have a great PR office, was heard to say when the revolutionaries came to the gates of Versailles asking for bread, if they don't have bread, why can't we just give them cake? And for that, she and the entire royal family and all of the French aristocracy lost their status and often lost their lives. And they were inspired, these peasants, the peasantry of France were inspired by a group of revolutionaries across the water in the Americas who in just the past few years had done something extraordinary. And that, that inspiration is still with us today in the symbol of Lady Liberty, which of course the French people gave to us here in America at the turn of the 20th century in sign and symbol of that inspiration that they received. Because here in America, the huddled masses gathered, persecuted, made poor by the systems of European feudalism. They escaped and found freedom to express their faith. But sadly, as so often happens, the abused became the abuser. And in our colonization, we abused first the indigenous people and then the enslaved Africans who were brought to make this land prosper. But in recognition of all of that, there was something that happened here that was remarkable. The thinkers of Britain and Scotland, John Lott, John Locke, Adam Smith, began to toy with the idea of what it would be like to have a society where people were entirely free to have their own property and to prosper as God allowed them. And so these ideas began to, began to propagate on American soil. And before long, revolutionaries emerged and formed a declaration of independence and a constitution and a bill of rights. And before we knew it, 
A war was fought and won. And we removed all of the peasants amongst the colonizers and made everyone an aristocrat. Still enshrined in American law, we have a castle law that says it's your castle, your home. Well, only aristocrats have castles. Only aristocrats are free. Only aristocrats are allowed to prosper with their own wit and wisdom. And now this was to be for all for whom the Constitution was written. And, of course, today we still wrestle to ensure that everyone has a seat at that table. But the idea is an amazing idea. Because I've chosen to be an American, I don't worry about the people who say, well, it's American exceptionalism and blah, blah, blah. America is an exceptional place. America is the greatest nation the world has ever seen, defined by ideas that are so noble that they have stirred generations of people to greatness and endeavor. But remember how the church conserved the framework of the Roman social order when Rome declined. Christians by nature are conservative people. They, they conserve what it is that, that's been given to them. When America was formed and it became a completely different model of society to what is found in Europe where there are no aristocrats but everybody is now a wealthy peasant. When America was formed and the peasantry was removed and everyone was given the opportunity to become, this is broad brush strokes, you understand, is given the opportunity to become an aristocrat. The church preserved something. See, it's very interesting. Feudalism has two metrics. How many peasants do you have and how much tax do they pay? The twin metrics of the American church are how many people attend and how much do they give. And people like me are given power and are expected to provide. And that would be fine, except for the fact that Jesus said, but you are not to be like this. And how do I know that we think that people like me should provide? Well, I've worked with hundreds of churches across this nation and thousands of churches around the world. But particularly here in America, you can go into the parking lot of just about any church and you can hear this conversation. Did you get fed this week? You've heard it too, haven't you? You've been part of it too, maybe. Did you get fed this week? Well, I, I think, yeah, it was okay, but I like the other one. He feeds us better. I mean, the kids, I think they're getting fed, so it's okay, but I'm not sure. But I mean, if it carries on like this, maybe we just need to go to another restaurant. 
Now, what's wrong with this? Is it wrong to provide? Is it wrong to feed the flock? Of course not. It's what the flock are doing with it and what it is that we're assuming is the process that's involved. You see, we need to go back to the text and see what Jesus said. Jesus said, those who are among you who lead should be like the servant and those who rule should be like the child. Think of it in the time of Jesus. The servant who has no property, has no power within the household. The child has no property, has no power in the household. They function very much on a par, the children and the servants. They go to the kitchen. Nothing in the kitchen do they own. From the kitchen, they take a plate of food and they put it on the, on the table in front of the people who are eating. Never once do they own any of it. We as Christians are conduits of provision. We are conductors of power. The power of the Spirit, of course. But he is supposed to flow through us to others. The provision of Jesus, of course. But the provision of Jesus is the provision of Jesus. And he places it in our hands to place before others. Because being a disciple is being a producer, not a consumer. And if that's true, then it changes everything. Because now we understand discipleship not as the acquisition of information, get some information on Sunday, Mike's pretty good at giving some information, and then Wednesday we've got some information because the house church shepherd's gonna give us some more information, then we can go back Sunday and get some more. And then we can go back on Wednesday and get some more. It's great, we just keep on getting information, it's wonderful. If that's what discipleship was about, it would be great, but it isn't. Discipleship is defined by being a being a disciple that makes a disciple. That's the definition, not my definition, the definition of Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've taught you to do, everything, all the things I've taught you to do. So being a disciple means making a disciple. And so the process that's taking place here on Sundays and the process that's taking place in our house churches is not the acquisition of information, but a life of transformation where we are transformed to be used as instruments of transformation in the lives of others, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood among my family, among your family, among my friends, among your friends. Our task is to receive from Jesus and to share what it is that we've received and to do it as we receive it. And Jesus says this, he says, look, I know that this is hard for you to get your head around, but get your head around it from this point of view. I've already given you a kingdom. He says, I confer on you a kingdom. 
It's not something you're gonna get one day in the future, pie in the sky when you die. Jesus says, I confer, it's a present tense. I confer, the word confer, diatheke, means that Jesus covenants to give us his kingdom now. He's extending his kingship to us so that we are not simply seeing ourselves as peasants, but as members of the royal family. We are the aristocracy. And as such, we gladly and willingly embrace the role that he took. And our attitude is the same as that of Christ Jesus, who in very nature God chose not to grasp equality with God, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, even to death on a cross. Jesus says, do it like me. I'm the king who came to serve. I'm a king who came not with great riches in my hands, but I'm the king who came and I received from the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing, John 5, 19. I only do what I see the Father doing. I take what the Father gives me and I give it to you. You do the same. That's what a disciple is. And it means that we're free from spiritual feudalism. It means that we're free from being peasants, wondering whether we've got enough food. It means that we're free from the spiritual scarcity spirit that that gets us into this idea that I don't know enough yet. It's absolutely rubbish. We know more than the vast majority of pastors down through the centuries. We're better trained and better educated than the vast majority of Christendom down through the generations. We're ready now. And the reason we're ready is not because we've got it together, but because we know where to get it from. We're servants and children. We go to the kitchen and receive from the king and we give what the king gives us and share it with others. So you see, there is a great opportunity. There are so few churches like Apex, believe me. The vast majority of the American church has only one aspirational model, the megachurch, which is basically a refugee camp for mainline Christians whose denominations are collapsing. And like so many refugee camps around the world, the people in those refugee camps have become entirely institutionalized and they simply feed and receive what's given to them. But there is another model and it's a model that is built upon a way of understanding church that comes right out of the day of Pentecost. Next week and the week after, we'll look at what, it, what it's like to have a church that has a temple expression and an expression in the home, a house church. What's it like for a church to have a gathering, maybe on a Sunday, and a house church, maybe during the week? What would that kind of a church be like? What would that kind of church be like if it really took on that shape of things? and really took on the the calling and the opportunity of what it means to be a disciple in that kind of setup, what would that be like? Well, I have no idea. Does anybody know a church like that? The opportunities are amazing. But the challenge is this. We have to put away peasant thinking. We have to put away spiritual feudalism. 
you don't even believe in it. You're Americans. I mean, come on. You believe in being free. You believe in personal determination and personal responsibility. You believe in it. Of course you do. We just had July the 4th. Somebody believes in it. So why do we live a different way in our churches? There is a way that we can be disciples that make disciples and Jesus will show us that way because he's absolutely committed to it.